The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the writer Colin Tobin, who's best known as a novelist, but we're going to talk about his debut collection of poetry, Vinegar Hill. Colin, welcome. Hi, Sam. Um, now, one of the things that's, that's always nice to do when we have a poet on is to ask them if they're able to read a poem. Is there one you might be able to... Um, yeah, yeah, perhaps um, I just read the first poem in the book, really. Wouldn't that be the simplest? Yes. The sonnet, which is also means good because it's short. There's no such thing as a long sonnet. So it's called September. Are you ready? Yep. September. The first September of the pandemic. The sky's a watercolour, white and grey, and Pembroke Street is empty, and so is Leeson Street. This is the time after time. What the world will look like when the world is over when people have been ushered into seats reserved for them in the luminous heavens. Moving towards the corner of Upper Pembroke Street and Leeson Street, an elderly man wears a mask. His walk is sprightly, his movements brisk. I catch his watery eye for a watery moment. Without stopping, all matter of fact, he says, someone told me you were dead. No, you are, as I said at the beginning, best known as a novelist. It's quite late to get started as a poet, isn't it? What? Oh, it's terribly late. I mean, it really is. I mean, I feel like Penelope Fitzgerald or somebody, but I wrote poems really re- religiously between the ages of 12 and 20. And um, I really worked at them. And by the time I was 17, I was in university. I was, you know, I had friends, poets, and we were all poets, except that no one wanted my poems and no one would publish them. And I got left out of a lot of things. And um Really, by the time I was 20, I stopped. Life got too exciting and I just didn't bother writing poems. And then I just was an ex-poet, a failed poet, and a sad, you know, person. Because, of course, Ireland has got a lot of very good poets. So being, there are a lot of people who are nearly poets in Dublin and you often meet them and they look at you and you look at them and you recognise each other. It's like failed priests. And um, so... uh, (laughs) When I finished my novel, The Master, which was in 2004, 2005, I had nothing to do. And I had been working so closely, I suppose, with words and changing them and rereading and rewriting that I began to write these little poems or they ended up little poems. They often were longer and I made them shorter. So over the next, say, 15 years, I gathered together about 20, meaning one and a half a year. It was lovely because I could say, oh, I just write one and a half a year. I felt highly Japanese, you know, in that in that I was a minimalist and one and a half poems a year. Eventually, I wrote, because I had cancer, I was on steroids, and the steroids are great for anything. You get about an hour a day of total clarity. And so I um, wrote some poems under, under the influence of steroids, and uh, they had a new sound. And I published two of these in Poetry Ireland Review. And then the editor, John McAuliffe, who was also a poet, who was also someone I knew, saw these and saw the other poems and just said, you know, these are actually good. And that's the first time anyone had ever said that to me. So I was really chuffed. I went around very bloated in my general feeling about myself for a while. And then the pandemic came and I um, 
within Los Angeles in, in this room here. And I started to work every day on the poems. You, anything came into my head, any memory, any experience, anything at all. I would about seven o'clock every evening, I would do a draft. And then sometimes every hour go back to it, changing it, cutting it, bring it down, bring it up again, doing anything with it. Just, it became my crossword puzzle for the day, what to do, you know, and, and the cold light of morning, slicing, slicing the poem, you know, and then at night adding more. And so it, it, it was really for, for about a year, anything at all I thought of became a melody, became a line. You know that I, I would. I was. I was having a thing which I think people of my age often get, where you you don't sleep for two nights very well, and then the third night you go into this sleep of the dead. You know, and it's you get dreams and so. So I was thinking about this, and I was trying to you know work out. And then I was having lunch, and then I had to run from the lunch table to write the, down the first three lines of a poem called "Because the Night." And the first three lines might seem simple to you, but because there was a rhythm in my ear from them, I could then work. The first three lines are very simple. They're saying, not sleeping, and then, a ni- and then a night's hard sleep. Not sleeping, and then a night's hard sleep. And from that, I can then work. Once I have that opening, which I would call melody or rhythm. So anyway, I, anyway, I, I added all these and I sent them every time I'd have a new batch. I'd send them to John McAuliffe, who was really very nice about them. And, you know, because he didn't like some, so he would say that, which meant that I sort of trusted him. And he had very good ideas about cutting and adding and, you know, what didn't work and what did work. And over a while, he said, you know, we could publish a book of these. And of course, that's all I ever wanted in my life. I mean, you know, I know, I know that, you know, publishing short stories and books of novels but actually the thing that I dreamed about and I think a lot of people dream this with not necessarily writing the poems but being a poet and having a book of poems that if you're 17 you think I could be a poet and my book of poems would come and I would do readings from them that this seemed to, to me to be a, a very virtuous and yes a very positive sort of thing to be and there were many role models you see in Ireland we had W.B. Yeats but we also had Seamus Heaney. So, you know, you could, you, could, you could see what being a poet, it was magic. Anyway, it didn't happen. And um, now I have this book. Uh, it's called Vinegar Hill. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I came late to the light. Yeah, I mean, except you, I mean, obviously some of these poems, at least according to the jacket blurb, are older ones. And I mean, there seems to be a variance in style. I'm wondering, because some of them are more kind of gnomic and elliptical and compressed, and some are almost in Lowell's line, you know, as easy as prose. The earlier, the, one, the ones I've described to you um, that I wrote after the novel are the elliptical, are the ones that are almost abstract, that I've got enormous pleasure. I mean, I thought, like, since I, it's taken me so long to become a poet, I'm going to make no compromises, and these are going to be private, you know, and very American in the sense that I was taking bearings from, I mean, a lot of American poetry comes out now, it's quite hard to work out, you know, when there's a new Jory Graham poem, for example, you often have to try and work out, and then it's, it's a sort of a, a set, almost abstract expressionism, where there is actually a source, there is an image, there is a beginning, and then the language soars and, and burns and, you know, it's filled with gesture. And so I thought I would bring this down to a very compressed thing, usually six lines, and I know what it's about. I'm absolutely clear what it's about, but but it is as though I'm using a sort of abstract form of language. So in in America, it's called being a language poet. 
but I, I was trying to be a language poet, basically. I thought since, since I failed so abysmally to be any sort of other poet. And, uh, but the pandemic poems are, are me in sort of diary form that anything that occurred to me, they're sort of like whimsical sometimes, but, but then not. I mean, they're, they're very sad ones and they're ones that rhyme. I'd like to make clear to you, I have poems in this book that rhyme. I suppose the form was more relaxed. I was taking my bearings from uh, Frank O'Hara or, or from uh, Whitman, much, much more than from, say, you know, um, Wallace Stevens. Nonetheless, there is a discipline behind it because I, there are huge numbers of drafts of each poem and I don't keep drafts. I work, I mean, I work in longhand for novels. On, on this, I work on this laptop. And if a line isn't working, it goes and it, there's no record that was ever there. So it's, it's like painting in the sense that you're, you're covering things over, you're, you're, you're cutting things out. So there no, I won't be able to sell the manuscripts of these poems to any library because there are no manuscripts. They, they just simply don't exist. That everything, I love the idea that if a line displeases me, <laughs> it disappears and it will never come back again. So each draft is an erasure of the previous draft. And there's a lovely feeling about this. There's an excitement about this. You can't go back to an earlier draft to see, is there a line that I could use? No, just make it and you get, you know, work. Does Hemingway's idea that, that having erased something, it's still kind of subliminally there have any bearing on you? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah, but the main thing is not to dwell on that. Obviously, you, you've kind of, as you say... You, you've sort of gone through a poetic development in a very short space of time. You know, you become a language poet and then you become more loose-limbed. Is there something in writing poetry that you access a different kind of voice or sense of yourself as a writer than in prose? I mean, are you finding something different there or is there continuity? When, when I was writing poetry, when I was in my high moment, of age about 19, you know, um, I would have viewed novel writing as ridiculous, as, as absurd. The business of filling in all the, you know, you have to get all the verisimilitude. She had a red coat. Later on, she must also have that red, same red coat. And even in Ulysses, you know, Leopold Bloom has a bar of soap in his pocket. Joyce has to constantly refer to this bar of soap. It's so tedious. So that there is, there is in novel writing, you know, it is close to journalism in that you do have to create an illusion for the reader that this somehow is happening. So, I, I mean, I got over that feeling of contempt for novels because I started to write them. I mean, the, the, so I didn't feel that much shame, really. But um, <laughs> the lovely business of this is that you can merely, a single thought, if it moves into rhythm for you, can then be enough to give you the impulse to do the rest. And you can bring a poem anywhere at once. I mean, I was lying on the bed and I was writing a piece about Pope Francis. And I, I was just reading a lot of bishop talk, you know, and I came across the phrase Mysterium Lunae, the mystery of the moon. And I just liked it. I just stopped it for a second and looked at it. And then I went straight across to the laptop and wrote Mysterium Lunae. And then I wrote a long poem about that if in, you know, this global warming business, that everything is going to disappear slowly. Well, imagine if the moon just simply disappeared. There was no going to be no more moon at night, no moon. And people would say, that's where the moon used to be. And there used to be songs about the moon. And then I went, all the things that, of course, there are no tides anymore then. We don't have tides. And uh, the seas dry up then. And so I just could fantasize for as long as I liked on the idea that there was going to be no moon. <laughs> 
Now, in a novel, it's really hard to do that. I mean, in a novel, you've got to stick to the fact that if it's, there's a full moon, then there can't be no full moon in the next, if it's the same night, you know. And Whereas with this, with poems, you can really do anything you like. The, the only thing that is that Elizabeth Bishop said that you can't or you mustn't ever tell a lie in a poem or that everything in a poem must be true. So you're often, what you do when, you, when I'm revising or working, saying, is that true? Even if it's a fantasy like the moon, is that true to the fantasy? Am I, have I moved out of fantasy? But other poems, personal poems, poems about things that happened, go back and think, am I exaggerating that feeling? Because the one thing you mustn't do in a poem is exaggerate feeling. That feeling must not exceed its cause. And that means you're constantly bringing feeling down to where it should be. Meaning that you stick, is, is that how it felt? Because don't exaggerate it. Because if you exaggerate it, you'll get the rhythm wrong. The only way the poem will come together properly, the only way the lines will seem right when you read them, is if they're based on something that is not exaggerated and that is true. And so you work on that. And and that's a rhythmic thing. I mean, there's a line in the po- in one of the poems where you say, the chances that come in poem making to create two final lines that read like fact. <laughs> That's that's Hopkins talking. Yeah, that, yes. that he wants that sort of send my roots rain, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, that uh, yeah, that that uh, that that whole idea that you're building that your that fact is not an enemy of the poem, that your your better of a poem begins with a fact, uh, even if you're going to mess with the fact, but the fact is, is important. So when you're working, you, you go back. What was what's the image here? What am I actually thinking about? and go back to that, and that will lead you towards the phrase you've been looking for all the time. And, but, but not that the phrase will, the phrase itself will, will, the words will not come alone. The words will only come in relation to the image or in relation to the fact or in relation to the feeling, if you're true to the feeling. And it's, it's hard to be true to feeling sometimes because no matter what we do, we don't have the right words for feelings. I mean, the we, 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 we all know this, that you use a word like grief or you use a word like joy. These words really crumble in the light of the, of the thing itself, the experience. On this, this poetic fact thing, there's another poem which is a prayer to St Agnes where you basically seem to, or the speaker of the poem, is saying, save me from metaphor. You know, I want my poem to be as direct as possible and as free from metaphor as possible. Is that a kind of... Yeah, and simile. No, not just metaphor, simile. That, you know, don't go, this was like this. It wasn't like this. Nothing is like anything. It's maybe slightly like it, but not overwhelmingly like it. And so, so in other words, just, just don't go into the easy business. Someone like William Carlos Williams is very helpful here because often he just states a set of facts. He just puts a number, he just puts an image down. And he doesn't say that anything is like anything else. So, yeah, the prayer to St. Agnes. I just picked St. Agnes. She was no particular reason why I was St. Agnes. I just like the sound of St. Agnes and St. Agnes. Yeah, I asked her to help me not to um, over-adorn over poems and to be able to just put things down like haikus and to go all minimalist. How, how sincere are your, are your prayers? I'm just in the religious feeling in the book because obviously, you know, you grew up in Ireland in, in, I guess, a pretty religious environment. But you say, there's, there's one poem which you say, you know, you, you much prefer the Holy Ghost to 
Jesus yeah. or God the Father because it's it's sort of more self-effacing. Yeah, that 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 I like. You know, I was talking, thinking about losers, you know, the people we really, really like. Like, I was thinking about R.A. Butler, who was always not being prime minister. I was thinking about Gerald Ford, who, you know, was not really president. Also, the Betty Ford really took all the glory from him later on with her clinic. And, uh, you know, those sort of figures in history that sort of... And I was thinking about the poet laureate that no one ever reads, like Alfred Austin. Like, who has ever read Alfred Austin? So, you know, that whole idea of the, all these shadowy figures. So, yeah, that's, that's a poem about, about uh, wanting just not to have been much, really, just to have been, you know, um, to, to, be, to be slightly left off the list uh, as being one of, the, one of the things that one could want in life, you know. So is that the Holy Ghost is the also run? Yeah, and, and in, obviously in the Holy Trinity, then the Holy Ghost is the one that didn't get crucified and, you know, didn't make light. What did the Holy Ghost do? That is a, well, you know, maybe there a bit for the conception of Jesus business, but he, even that no one's quite sure about. So I was just thinking about the Holy Ghost as a figure in that. But there's a moment in John Lanchester's book about his mother, I think it's called Family Matters, that um, he said that nuns in Ireland always drive very badly. And I immediately wanted to call him up and say, no, John, the reason why nuns drive badly is that when Vatican II allowed nuns to drive, they didn't say which nun. And I just thought this really is a poem that, like, and um, which, which nun? Because the mother superiors then thought they could drive, but they were very, very old. And learning to drive when you're old is very hard, and they couldn't do the clutch. So all around Ireland, it may have happened in other countries, you had this dreadful Sunday afternoon nun car coming towards you with shuddering and shaking because the nun didn't know how to change the gear and everything. Oh, the nun, watch, there's a nun, you know. And so uh, it also gave me the chance to write what I think is the three best lines in the poem, in, in the book, which is, it was decided that nuns should be let drive. I just think like that, no matter what you do with that, those three lines, they're true. It was decided that nuns should be let drive. Notice no similes, no assonance, no rhyme, no a- any form of symbolism or metaphor or anything at all. It was decided that nuns should be let drive. And I was very satisfied with those. I don't know why. I mean, you can just imagine if Ted Hughes had this or something, he would say something magnificent. But the point was not to be magnificent, just to bring it down to it was decided that nuns should be let drive and then, and then see where the poem would take you. You sound, from the way you talk about it, like you had real fun playing with these <laughs> verses. And, you, you know, you were on record as finding writing quite not fun. I remember an interview you gave a few years ago, which is very striking to me, because normally writers are very, you know, oh, my art is, is everything to me. And you were saying, oh, it's awful, I hate writing. It's, it's, it's enormously hard work and I, I wish I didn't have to do it. It's a question of knowing what fun is. And fun is a simple business. It's swimming in the Mediterranean with someone you love in the month of June. You know, and everyone, like, that's fun. I mean, and knowing that you're going to have a nice dinner later and stuff. But um, the business, grinding business of trying to describe what someone is doing, feeling and thinking in relation to someone else in which there must be drama is really, is, you know, the, the amount of detailed concentration on each image. It's called work. And... People go to work. There's no point in being self-pitying about it, but it isn't fun. I mean, it just just isn't, isn't, isn't fun. But there were, I mean, there were poems. There are poems in this book that are really very dark, and there are poems about my parents and family and stuff where I did feel some days that there were things I needed. Just another image would come, and and I would um, 
suddenly have to face something that I hadn't really written down before. And so, you know, yeah, well, some of them are sort of funny, but there are a few that I um, that are emphatically not. You know? yeah. I mean, the, t- the title poem, I'm just talking about the title poem because Vinegar Hill is, it was, was just right up the road from where you grew up, wasn't it? Yeah, that if you look across from our front windows, um, you see Vinegar Hill. So that the, the sun comes, because it's east, the sun comes up from just to the side of it. And so, yeah, it, it, loomed, it, was, it loomed over everything. It loomed over the town. Yeah. And you could also, in the summer, you could walk up there. A group of kids could decide, we're going up to Vinegar Hill for the day. You know? And Vinegar Hill, is, as I'm sure most of our listeners will know, but you know, it was the scene of a great battle in the Irish uprising of the end of the 18th century, wasn't it? Yeah, that, um, in other words, it's the, both the beginning and the end of the 1798 rebellion. It's in the ballads at Vinegar Hill or the Pleasant Slaney. Our heroes vainly stood back to back, but the yos of Tullow took Father Murphy and burned his body upon the rack. And the, these sort of ballads would, you know, so, so it's famous for that reason. Obviously, the problem is that if you live in the town, you don't view it like that. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a group of local authority houses called Vinegar Hill Villas. And they're not called after the rebellion. They're called after, you know, the hill. You know, the hill is a thing. It's rock. It, it, it appears in light. And, and it may have, you know, big, big value uh, coming up to memorial time or in ballads. But what I wanted to do is sort of play with the two things. Could you see it without thinking of history? And I got a line, you know, sometimes you're working, you think, I got a line that I liked that I left in called uh, the hill is above all that. You know, I think about history. The hill is above all that. And I like the idea of Fiddy being above history, you know. So, yeah, so the, so the effort was to try and describe it as real, as a thing as a thing that appears in light, as, you know, that the sun comes over from that particular point. Well, the conceit of the poem, isn't it? Is it, is it your mother who's trying to paint it? Yeah, and the, and the image on the cover of the book um, is my mother's painting um, of Vinegar Hill. I mean, that's hers. And so that's the problem she was facing, is to how do you get all this swirling light without having to put, you know, cannons and various blood and stuff you know in other words that i'm playing with the idea of it as a physical reality and then the shadow coming in all the time no matter what you do of it as a um thing that happened in history is you've got sort of history peering over your shoulder quite a lot in the poems i mean you you know you found yourself when you're being treated for cancer you said this poem in the same building that james joyce occupied Yes, that very funny idea that you're lying in bed and you're getting you know chemo poured into you, um, and um, but you're in the actual the, the the nuns of course own the building, own the street, and they had no interest in preserving the building in which Leopold Bloom and his fictional wife Molly lived. You know, and, and that didn't interest the nuns, so they just knocked it down, and nobody stopped them, and um, they built a private hospital on a corner, and. Um, that's where I got treated for. And I was in there quite a lot because there were all these complications and all these difficulties. So I kept being, you know, three weeks in to try and get, you know, some new thing put into me. And so I was lying there, realizing that I was in the very place where Leopold Bloom had brought Molly her breakfast and where their cat was and where, um, you know, Molly Bloom, as, as I'm lying in bed, Molly Bloom was in the same space with her soliloquy. But so I, so I, well, look, if you can't write a poem about that, look, that is a great subject for a poem, really, isn't it? I am in bed in the building. I'm in bed getting chemo put into me um, in the same space as Leopold Bloom lived. And you think, 
look, if that isn't a poem, what's a poem? That experience, the sort of brush with death thing, changed the way you felt about your writing and your, I mean, did it kind of jolt you or reorient you in any way? Um, no, no, it was just a complete waste of time. It was a complete bore and it was, it was, it took ages to, you know, and it was so bad at certain times that you just said, I didn't pray exactly, but I did speak to the air to say, just get me through the next five minutes and then I'll, re, you know, I'll revisit my position. But you sort of lived five minutes by five minutes because the anguish created by chemo is so enormous. The, what happens in your, in your to, you know, you, you get a, depression isn't the word for it, but the main thing that happened is that the sort of chemo I took, which is called cisplatin, can affect your hearing very seriously and you can go deaf. And so before I started the chemo, I got a test done, you know, to do a base test for your hearing. In my view, my hearing improved. And not only that, but my memory for melody improved. So if I've been listening to something in the morning, I could hum it for you in the afternoon in a way that I couldn't before. So I think that part of the poetry thing comes being able to get a sort of natural breathing sound in poems that didn't offend anyone else's ear came actually from a freedom. But this is a physical thing caused by the chemo. But as regards the spiritual or the, you know, you look, people can go on about, I suddenly valued life more than ever. This is all rubbish. I mean, it's just, like, it's just, that's all complete rubbish. It was a bore. It was just boring. It was just really tedious. It just wouldn't end. You realize, you know, on Friday, I'm in this bed getting this whatever, I had to get prophylactic antibiotics at a certain point over three weeks. I'm going to have to lie here for three weeks and that no one, there's nothing anyone can do for me other than come in and wave at me or something. But, you know, it, it was just tedious and I, and I couldn't read. I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't write. I, 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 I couldn't think straight. And uh, that was awful. But it wasn't as though at the very end of it, I embraced life in a whole new way and I've never stopped thanking God or whoever invented chemo or my oncologist. It's just not like that. <laughs> now, the poems also contain some very good gossip. And one thing I have to ask you about, it's your poem about going to the White House on St. Patrick's Day and the way in which the poem describes, and, and true to your prayer to St. Agnes, purposely and elaborately resists metaphor, even though it's very tempting, but it describes how you were, as it were, cleared out of the room. Did this really happen? Express. Ah, uh, yeah. Gave the date at the end. It was 2010. We were all delighted. We dressed up um, to be invited to the White House. It was the Obama at the height of his glamour, and it was very exciting. And, um, you know, I shook his hand. It did all those things. But once Obama and Biden and Michelle went away, we were ushered into a big room and that was very nice because and we were all, we were the Irish in, in, in Washington. We were highly excited and um, all sorts of different people were there and everyone was embracing. It was a, suddenly realised that the waiters had formed a line at the bottom of the room and they were walking very slowly, you know, step by step towards us, but very slowly and no one could get behind them. And this meant that inevitably they were going to move halfway through the room and they were going to move further. This is how they were getting us out of the room. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I wondered how long, had Jackie, was it Jackie, was it Barbara Bush? Like, who had invented this system? And of course, then we were suddenly, the Irish, we were all out on the street wondering what hit us. And uh, it's always been in my mind as, as a great adventure, you know, seeing what wearing your welcome 
out looks like physically, like this is what wearing your welcome out is like, wearing out your welcome. But um, there was there was another point where I, I got an honour at, at a thing in New York and I was with a famous English writer who I'd better not name, but um, <laughs> to welcome us, to give us, uh, you know, to make sure this was a great occasion, they got Jessie Norman to sing You'll Never Walk Alone. And uh, she sang it as though, honestly, it was Schubert, you know, like she, when you walk. And we just started laughing because we were the Liverpool fans, you know, and we just could. And I had to say to the novelist, I will pinch you if you don't stop laughing because I will laugh. We were shaking with laughter as she went, you know, when at the end of the storm, there's a gold. And the Americans were so they were almost in tears with the beauty of the song. And it just struck me the great difference between us and them, that they could listen to that song and think it was serious. And we would just howl with laughter at You'll Never Walk Alone. And the Atlantic really is very wide. And I think it's very deep. And uh, I wrote a poem about it. It's in the book. It's called it's called November in America, because it was the night that Trump was elected. The vote had been that day. Speaking of the Atlantic, you're—I mean, I'm speaking to you. You're in LA at the moment, and I think the last Irish poet I interviewed on this podcast was Paul Muldoon, who was also on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, what is it with, you know, Heaney obviously went to Harvard. What is it with sort of Irish writers and hopping across the pond? I mean, is this the sort of silence exile cunning shtick, or do you see Ireland more clearly from over there? What's <laughs> it's. Um... I actually find New York, where I, you know, I am most, I am this semester, I teach every spring semester. They call it spring, but it's actually winter semester at Columbia. And uh, it's very, very quiet. I live on the Upper West Side where nothing ever happens. And, uh, you know, it's like living on a little campus town and I've got a library and I've got these brilliant students. And uh, there's no downside. You see, if I was in Dublin, there'd be also things going on. Most of them caused by me. You know, I'd be out somewhere. I'd be going to things. But in New York, really nothing like that ever happens. And um, it's it's very scholarly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm all, because I teach in the English department. I don't do creative writing stuff. And uh, so I spend my time studying and taking notes and being really serious. And um, it couldn't be better. And yeah, there's a long tradition of it. it goes back, I mean, when W.E. Yeats needed money, in around 1900, he went on a tour of America. He didn't go over to you guys because you guys wouldn't give him the money. He went to America and the Americans, big crowds would come to see him and think he was marvellous and give him money. And uh, it's really been going on ever since. I mean, ever since I think the Great Irish Famine was the beginning of it, in the sense that the Irish people found that they could um, make their fortune in America. I mean, it did, they didn't all do that. I mean, a lot of them were really down and out eventually. But there was a myth around the making of money. And that extended to writers. And so, yeah, Muldoon lives around the corner from me in in, in uh, Upper West Side. And um, I mean, everyone, it isn't just Muldoon and Heaney. I mean, Ivan Boland was in Stanford. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's what you do. That's another thing you dream about when you're 19. Not only am I going to be a poet, but I'm going to get to go to America and be a poet, an Irish poet in America. That's another rite of passage, another big deal thing. So don't laugh at it. It's... Um, it's serious. Not at all. Does it does it help you to kind of see Ireland more clearly? <laughs> they used to say that yeah, that if you wanted to see Tara, go to Hollyhead. But I, I, you know, I don't need to see Ireland more clearly. I, I have enough of it. You know, in other words, I was. It's in my. It's in me. You know, I like it's in how I speak. It's in how I, everything. So I don't 
need to see it more clearly. I, I, I realize that if you're away a lot, you do sort of miss a sort of zeitgeist, what's going on in the country. I think there's much more interest in the United Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland now than there was. And I don't, I, I don't feel part of that. I, I, the, the, so I feel slightly left out of the way the society is moving. But that's fine with me because uh, if, if I have to be left out of a United Ireland, that's cool. That's that's that's. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll put up with that. Another poem, I, I guess it must be a, a true story. You describe being kind of basically collared by Special Branch sometime. I guess yeah. this must have been the late seventies or early eighties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is about nineteen seventy-five. I would say in Dublin when there the, the really was an extraordinary idea that all around the place were all these terrorists and that the, the, the special branch, but I, I was really busy. The, the, I, the volume I had, I don't, don't name it in the poem, it's the volume of Keats's poems. I mean, I was the sort of boy that was walking from somewhere to somewhere else with Keats under my arm. And the last thing I was thinking about was dying for Ireland or having anything to do with anyone who, who was, you know. And uh, yeah, I was, I was jumped on by four burly Irish special branch men who, you know, might have been better off, you know, snagging turnips in a field or something. But they they jumped on me and they presumed. You see, because their car started to go up very slowly. They were were curb crawling and I was walking and I couldn't think why these four fellows were looking out at me in such an ugly way. I continued walking for a while and then I thought I'd be safer if I just ran up to to the bigger street. You know, and um, so I just set up running, and of course they went wild with with excitement. It was suddenly a terrorist is running, and of course they caught up with me, and they ran out of their car. Huge drama, and on on the way up, I passed by a prostitute, a woman, and she was very nice. She just said to me, "You're worse to run," but I didn't know what she meant by that. You're worse to run, she said. I put that in the poem, and I didn't get up as far as this big street because they four burly fellows jumped on me, and it was very frightening, and. Uh, one of them started to leaf through my book as though it was going to give him a clue as to what terrorist army I was a member of. But, and they couldn't believe I didn't know they were branchmen. They were really upset. as though <laughs> How would you know someone was a branchman? Anyway, um, yeah, I wrote a poem about that. called Ira, It's called I Ran Away, which is what the, they used to have in Belfast when the IRA wasn't fully formed. They, IRA, you know, I Ran Away. So it's, uh, it's, you know, it was, it was a mural in Belfast to try and get the IRA to really start arming and start bombing things. IRA, I ran away. Is the book composed according to a sort of shape? Because it's not chronological. I'm wondering how you've, how you've ordered it or did you just go, this is a sort of... Very highly ordered. I mean, John McAuliffe ordered it. I didn't. And uh, I I had no problems with what he did. He was very coherent. I could see what he was doing. And he leaves the sort of sad poems to the end. And um, he puts in, in the early part, there are a lot of those little abstract poems I told you about. And uh, so I was very happy with what he did. He he put a lot of thought into it. And it was lovely having somebody, you know, putting that amount of sort of, you know, work into the arranging of poems in a book. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, again, it's out of my dreams. Um, now, you, you, you're teaching, as you say, in the English department rather than the creative writing department. Does that sort of inform your practice? I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe I, we're, we're here to talk about the poems, but I will sort of stray off momentarily. You have, you know, in The Master and in your book about Thomas Mann, you know, you've, in your novels you've, you've t- started to use the scaffolding of biography as a 
as a sort of framework for writing fiction. What what was it that attracted you to doing that? Um, I, I mean, I think that even in the non-literary books, for example, in a novel like Brooklyn, I don't think I could have written Brooklyn had I not, in the previous few years, been teaching Mansfield Park, been teaching Washington Square. In other words, two novels in which there's a sort of submerged heroine who does not shine, lives in shadow, and people don't sort of rate her as being powerful. You know, that I, I was really studying with the, in a seminar how this figure emerges for the reader as powerful, but for the people with her as not, how this idea of sort of unconscious presence works in fiction. But the main thing is that I, I you know, at, at the moment I'm teaching a seminar on Ulysses, where we're going through Ulysses episode by episode for the whole semester. And there's no more pleasure you can get. It's like writing poetry when you're my age. To start, I mean, I, I'm really working on the joy stuff and I get an infinite pleasure from the intricacies of the text. And um, it's wonderful work preparing the class and coming in really ready with everything marked and just showing them things and all that. And I'm doing another seminar on late Henry James. So, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in, when I stop talking to you, I'll be back with the ambassadors. And so... I'm not sure to what extent this feeds into the fiction I'm writing, but it has to make a difference. I know now that as I'm reading, say I was, we were doing the wings, of, the wings of the Dove, that every so often I would stop and something from my uh, the book novel I'm working on would come more powerfully into my mind. So it's it's got to be useful, but the thing is not to make it so that it's designed for that purpose. The, it, it is oddly enough a mixture of work and pleasure because you have to prepare you have to really prepare at that level you know late James Ulysses you're actually really getting pleasure from stuff and also getting pleasure from being in the seminar and people responding to I mean I mean the, the students are reading Ulysses for the first time what's interesting is that one of my students wrote a column about the class for the New York Times and um, she's called Maureen Dowd and Maureen's actually a MA student at Columbia, the you know the New York Times columnist. She, I mean, didn't she have to sign a non-disclosure agreement? When she she no, because no, she didn't. We didn't. And uh, so she wrote a column about being in the class for the New York Times. So I can tell you she's in the class because she told anywhere else she's in the class. And uh, but the main, I mean, mo- most of the students in that class are undergraduates actually. But they're you know the, the Columbia is funny like that. It's poor as you MA students or PhDs students can come into an undergraduate seminar. Or works like that, but uh, yeah, the teaching is. Um, it's very hard to write fiction during the fourteen weeks when I'm teaching. Uh, that you're better just to concentrate on doing one thing. You can, you know. So I, that's what I do. And are you are you working on a novel at the moment? Yeah, um, I got an idea. Um, John McGarren used to always say that he hoped he didn't have another idea until after Christmas. Um, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I got an idea for um, something with the same characters as in Brooklyn, uh, you know, two decades later. And um, so I'm trying to write that at the moment. Well, we'll all look forward to that. And until then, we have Vinegar Hill, which is out now. Column to Bean, thank you very much. Thank very you very much, much Sam. It's great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.
You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.